from the High Center Studios of Messiah College, where we like to save our pageantry for commencement time. Here in Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author and award-winning historian, John Fia. Thank you, Drew, and welcome to episode 59 of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast. We are glad you have joined us. Our guest today is Mandy McMichael. She is the author of a very interesting book on the history of an American institution, the Miss America pageant. And I love her title, Miss America's God, Faith and Identity in America's Oldest Pageant. Now, when I think of the Miss America pageant, several things come to mind. As a kid, I remember watching the pageant on television and imagining if one day I would be cool enough to date one of these beautiful women. As I entered my teenage years and became a committed evangelical Christian, I always felt a small twinge of guilt watching women parade across the stage in scanty swimsuits. My mother watched the pageant every year and let us kids stay up late to see who would be crowned Miss America. She loved the pageant. My mom would pick her favorites, offer commentary on whether Miss New Jersey had a chance in this particular year, and sing along with Burt Parks as he crowned the winner. I still remember most of the words to the song, There She Is, Miss America. And as a kid who grew up in New Jersey, the Miss American pageant always invoked a kind of nostalgia for Atlantic City and the Jersey Shore. The pageant always took place the weekend after Labor Day. As a family, we always spent a week or two before the holiday at the Jersey Shore, a kind of last gasp of summer before school started. The Miss America pageant, with its video cuts to the ocean waves and the boardwalk, seemed to give me one last way to connect with those late August memories at the beach. The Miss America pageant was part of the boardwalk culture I loved as a kid. But what I didn't realize growing up in the 1970s was that Jersey boardwalk towns like Atlantic City were already in the midst of decline. When I knew we would be talking about the Miss America pageant on this episode of the podcast, I went to my bookshelf and pulled off Bryant Simon's wonderful history of Atlantic City, Boardwalk Dreams is the title. Simon does a nice job of cutting through my childhood nostalgia by revealing the dark side of my Jersey Shore golden age. By the late 1960s, Simons writes, Atlantic City had become a, quote, poster child for urban blight and decay, unquote. The same could be said for many of my favorite boardwalk towns, Asbury Park, Wildwood, and Seaside Heights, to name a few. If one thing remained constant during these years of decline in Atlantic City, it was the Miss America pageant. But as the city continued its downward turn and the pageant came under fire from feminists, it was no longer integrated into the life of the boardwalk as it had been in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s. By 2004, the pageant had left Atlantic City for the more glamorous venue of the Las Vegas Strip. Simon continues his story of decay, quote, the straggling handful still came to Atlantic City in the 1970s. Some made the trip for sentimental reasons. 
This was the place of their first kiss or their first meal with white linens and polished silverware. Others came because they heard about the city on television or saw it in films. They knew its streets from Monopoly games or from watching the Miss America pageant. Still others, working people in particular, came because they could finally afford the trip. And of course, African Americans came now that they could. But almost all of them were disappointed with what they found. Like those who came before them, visitors in the 1970s came to Atlantic City to act out a fantasy. But unfortunately, these blue-collar and black families found few engaging fantasies available along the boardwalk. The city didn't offer luxury experience at a middle-class price anymore. What was left were auction house rip-offs, cheap sex shows, greasy slices of pizza, and tacky souvenirs. Piece by piece, at the same time, the city's wonderfully contrived backdrop was coming down. The beachfront hotels had lost their elegance. The movie houses that were still open were moldering and ugly. And the Midway offered second-rate bands and third-rate comics, unquote. When casinos came to Atlantic City, everything changed again. And not necessarily for the better. But that's a story for another podcast. Mandy McMichael will tell us a lot more about the Miss America pageant, and she will be with us in a moment. But first, let me tell you how you can connect with our work here. When you get a chance, head over to recordedhistory.net to check out some of our fellow network podcasts. The Way of Improvement Leads Home is brought to you through the generous donations of Lisa DeGuardi, Richard Green, Ron Schooler, Kate Logan, Margaret Graves, and Gretchen Adams. And as always, thanks to Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. We are a listener-supported podcast, and we keep this thing going by your generous financial donations. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please head over to thewayofimprovement.com and click support. The best way to spread the word about the podcast is to tell a friend. You can follow us at T-W-O-I-L-H podcast on Twitter and on Facebook. If you like an episode, give us a share or a retweet and consider a positive review on iTunes and Stitcher. Mandy McMichael is Associate Director and J. David Slover Assistant Professor of Ministry Guidance at Baylor University. She joined the Religion Department at Baylor in the summer of 2017 after five years as an Assistant Professor of Religion at Huntingdon College in Montgomery, Alabama. McMichael received her Ph.D. in American Religious History from Duke University and writes about Baptist history beauty and religion, evangelicalism, missions and evangelism, 
and women in ministry. She is an ordained minister in the Baptist tradition who has served in a variety of ministry roles, most recently as the organist at Pintlala Baptist Church in Hope Hull, Alabama. McMichael and her husband, Chad Eggleston, have two children. McMichael's current book and the topic of our discussion today is Miss America's God, Faith and Identity in America's Oldest Pageant. It was published in 2019 with Baylor University Press. Mandy, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell me, how does a person get involved or get interested in a scholarly book about the Miss America pageant? How did you come to this subject? The short answer is that I grew up in Alabama and pageants were everywhere. The more personal answer is that I embarked on this journey to make sense of my own story and the story of so mm-hmm. many Southern Christian women like myself. I, in Alabama, where I grew up, the pageants were celebrated community events. My cousin won a lot of pageants. I won exactly one. I watched and competed in many more. It never struck me as odd that faith and the pageant went together until sometime when I was in graduate school at Duke Divinity School. So I was trying to make sense of my own story when I went looking to see how do these things go together? So I went kind of from being really prideful about this thing to embarrassed about it. And then as I started studying, I realized it was not quite that simple. It wasn't good or bad, right or wrong, or black or white. It was both and. And so I really tried in in the the book to um, embrace my in-betweenness as an insider-outsider to make sure I was portraying the women I was writing about in ways that they could see themselves. Now, now I'm just really curious. You are at Duke Divinity School studying with the noted American religious historian Grant Wacker, biographer of Billy Graham, scholar of American Pentecostalism, and you say you're interested in writing about the Miss America pageant. What was his response? So I started doing this, honestly, as a master's thesis. So I did my MDiv, and then I planned to do this as a THM thesis where I had this interest. I thought it was going to be a really, really quick that I was going to go pull some books and someone would have already studied this. And I'd have my answer and be able to move on with my life. So when I was applying to PhD programs, I actually proposed to write about like missionaries in the 19th century or something like that. And then when I went looking, no one had written a book about religion in the Miss America pageant. There were a couple of articles where people noted the connection, but there was no book length treatment. So I realized I was going to have to collect that data myself if I wanted the answer to this question. I mean, the truth is that Grant convinced me that this is what I needed to do. Oh, good. That when I got into the program, he's like, no, you need to stick with the pageant. Yeah. You need to do that. And so I did. And I'm very glad that we had that conversation and that he saw the importance. Is there scholarly books or reputable treatments of the Miss America pageant that don't cover religion, but just kind of the history of the Miss America pageant that are out there? Yes, there are. The most popular probably being Sarah Bennett Weiser's book, The Most Beautiful Girl in the World, Beauty Pageants and National Identity. It was published in 1999 and has 
kind of been the go-to source for individuals who are interested in studying the pageant or taking it seriously as a subject of scholarly research. The second book that is pretty prominent is Karen Tice's book, Queens of Academe, about college women who participate in pageants. And she actually has a chapter in her book that deals with faith uh, and the faith of college contestants in their and the way they compete and the, their use of the Bible and how they talk about their participation. And so I was excited to see that, that I was not the only person who had noticed this connection um, and kind of used some of her research that she had done as I was approaching this project for myself. Let's dive in here to some of the content. You start off the book talking about the 2011 Miss America pageant, and you use this phrase that raw sexual energy flooded the stage. Right. As a boy growing up in the 1970s, I didn't think the Miss America pageant was really about anything else. I'm embarrassed to say this idea that you go on to argue sex has always been a part of the Miss America pageant and it's been consistent throughout. So you stress the continuity. I'm just really curious about sort of change over time, right? How did the culture of sex at the pageant change from, you know, its birth in the 1920s to present? So to be clear, I think that they have attempted with various levels of success to contain the sex of the pageant or to hide sex in the pageant or to name sex something else. Uh, So to talk about it as physical fitness or in the beginnings of the pageant to talk about judging the women based on who would be an ideal wife and mother. So that's kind of where it starts. This idea that this is not about sex. It's about who's going to be the best wife and mother birth America's children and to raise them and to to continue this feminine ideals of American culture. But that in and of itself is about sex. Who do we want to marry? And it starts with sex, this idea that they're crowning the person that is America's ideal. And at that time, the ideal person, the ideal homemaker, the one who's going to be the moral guardians of society, and then kind of shifts to where it's this idea of a sex appeal for the enjoyment of the viewer so that those who are watching the pageant are kind of taking in what I talk about as kind of safe form of sex, right? This is not as scandalous Mm. as other forms in which it's available, Um, but it's still playing on that visual and that idea of um, this objectification of women that is for the enjoyment of someone else. I think then it shifts one more time to be about the women themselves owning their sexuality, that this is something they're choosing to do with their bodies. And so it becomes kind of the sex positive thing in the the last 10 or 15 years or so where there's a flaunting of sex. And that's part of what I'm talking about with the 2011 pageant, even in the presentation on the stage, the way they're walking, the clothes they're wearing, and the way that they're angling their bodies towards the audience. It's, It's an owning of that sex appeal of each of the individuals participating. Yeah, it's like they're not even hiding it anymore, right? It's not that they're not hiding it. They still want to say that it's not about sex, but it's more tongue-in-cheek now. It's not about sex. I mean, there's people on there announcing. We know that the men are now turning in for this portion of the pageant, right? So there's this acknowledgement that comes later 
where they're more explicit about it, even if, as they're saying, this is not the main thing. This is not what it's all about. But the truth is it's been there from the beginning. It just shifts the language that they use to talk about it shifts over time. Actually, after I finished the book, I was talking to my wife about this very thing. And I was reading to her. I'm not going to read it, but they say it's not specifically about sex as they're walking on the stage, right? But they're playing these like really explicit, I guess it's rap music or hip hop or these lyrics. They're not even sexual innuendos. It's clearly about about sex as they're walking up and down the stage. Right. So this Black Eyed Peach song that gets played during the 2011 pageant. And I think that's when something just clicked for me where I thought, oh my yeah. gosh, I was right. You know, like you have that moment sometimes as a researcher yeah. where you think, oh, am I on to anything? Am I not? And then see them walking on stage and see this music that's very explicitly about sex being played in the background. There's just no denying the sex appeal that's there, what they're trying to communicate. And I should add, you're a scholar of religion, right, who's trained as a historian as well. So there's a lot of history in this book, but there's also a lot of anthropological work, right? You went to a lot of pageants and, and sort of observed and did kind of anthropological work. I did. I went to a lot of pageants, yeah. over 35 pageants wow. during the course of my research. I went to pageants in eight different states and all over the country and to also to see Miss Washington, D.C., so the District of Columbia mm -hmm. pageant. And then I've been to the national pageant four times. So when you go to these pageants, you know, as observer slash scholar, right, do you sit in the audience? Do you get some kind of special access? Do you prearrange that in advance? Do you have your laptop in the seat? Are you taking notes? I'm just curious what that looks like. I am taking notes. Okay. <laughs> I don't have my laptop, but I always take with me a little notepad where I'm writing things out. I always buy the official program so that I can see the ads that are there, who's advertising, what are they saying, does any scripture show up, and it often does. And I, mm. But I'm sitting in the audience. I'm a participant observer. It, there's varying levels of participation. So sometimes I'll go and I won't know anyone and I'll kind of sit there and take it in and observe the people around me and, and take notes on what happens on stage. I'm always looking for explicitly religious content, whether they're singing a religious song or participating in the way they talk about their platform, they're using faith language. But then I'm just looking at the ritual of the pageant right. itself and how it sometimes mimics religious life in many ways. There are moments when I was going to local pageants in Alabama where I would see some of the same pageant moms every weekend. And I got to be friends with a couple of them. And Caitlin's participating in this one. So I can go with Laura, you know, and then I get the inside scoop from her about what was happening on the yeah. pageant circuit and just kind of get yeah. adopted into that family. I got to watch with a family from Miss Montana at one of the national pageants because a couple of the daughters were my students and their sister was Miss Montana. So I sat with the Weinmans and cheered alongside them, helped hold up part of the Miss Montana sign. So you know, sometimes I'm very much in the background observing, and then sometimes I'm right there in the midst of it with the families. That's great. 
For those of us who have never been to a Miss America pageant, or most people who don't watch Miss America pageant on television, you portray this very much as a televised event. I was remembering your interpretations here. You were talking about families watching together. And I remember my mom letting us stay up late, me and my brothers of all things, right? Staying up late to watch to see who the winner was going to be. At least my mother always made it a real event, almost in some ways. I wouldn't say it was her Super Bowl, but it was something very similar when I was a kid growing up. Talk about the Miss America pageant and its relationship with sort of mass media, with television. Sure. So it's interesting that you use the word Super Bowl, because I think that's how a lot of the contestants and their families will talk about it, that this is the female Super Bowl. The claim that's made that I can't even tell you how many times I've heard it is that parents are more likely to have a son play in the Super Bowl than a daughter to participate in Miss America. Oh, interesting. This is the national contest for women. This then becomes a way of entertaining masses. That is a way that we can connect with the country and promote these ideals that are what we consider American values. I mean, it's always been entertainment. But it hasn't, of course, always been on television. It really started on the shores of Atlantic City in 1921 as the swimsuit pageant that happens on the beaches in Atlantic City as a way to extend the tourist season. So it was traditionally held the weekend after Labor Day. And it was then from the very beginning was a desire to entertain and to kind of captivate audiences so that they would pay money to stay around in Atlantic City and make money for the hotel people and the other businesses in town. But eventually, of course, it shifts from this live show. Parts of the pageant kind of get added to over time. So it starts with the swimsuit pageant. Eventually, talent competition gets added. Interviews get added. This platform statement gets added. And then it kind of starts to morph from this live show to a filmed before an audience show. So the first time it appears on television is in 1954. Lee Merriweather is the first Miss America to be crowned on television. And it really, in many ways, begins to shift the focus of the pageant. Not that it changes completely, but all of a sudden you have a time limit on it. It can't go on for as long as the contestant speech goes. All of a sudden, we're going to have timed talents that are a certain amount of time, and we're going to be concerned about where the spotlights are, and we need to make sure that where the cameras are getting the best angles, it becomes a performance in the whole thing, a ritual or performance in a way it hadn't necessarily been before, but it's a way of capturing what had been happening on this scale in Atlantic City and broadcasting it to the nation, so it becomes this national event where now we're all tuning in to cheer for our favorite contestants or to cheer on our state representative. So I think that that's part of what is happening here with this idea of it being a televised event that's meant to draw people together. Was it always the Miss America pageant? You know, even in those pre-television days when it didn't have a national audience, did it always have that national reach or was it more like a local or regional kind of thing? It was not always called the Miss America pageant. So it's not until the 40s that every state has a representative. The first pageant, of course, did not have 50 people in it. So you write that women have long seen one another as rivals, quote unquote. And anyone who's not familiar with the ins and outs of pageant culture usually gets 
their knowledge about this from popular culture, like movies. You mentioned Miss Congeniality, for example, in the book or some kind of a reality television show. It might still be on with with kids competing in pageants. I do think a lot about pageant culture. I can't remember if you mentioned this in the book or not, but the Jean Benet Ramsey disappearance, or I don't even know what to call it, brought some attention to sort of pageant culture. The popular culture portrays it as this kind of cutthroat competing with each other. This is the nature of the pageants. I don't think you necessarily disagree with that position, but you nuance it a little bit more. And you're trying to show that women are involved in pageant culture for reasons more than just competition and winning and this kind of cutthroat mentality that we see in popular culture. Maybe you can explain, you know, how you have nuanced this this sense of popular culture about pageants that we often have. Of course. So it is about competition. It's a contest. There can only be one winner. But I think that there is some cutthroat parts involved depending on where you're competing. But that said, competition in and of itself can be valuable. We would never say there's nothing to be learned if you lose a game. And so for the women who are involved in pageants, they would claim the same is true, that they're competing and that in and of itself is rewarding to them. They are learning and gaining a lot from their participation. So they talk about the character that they develop through their losses, the personal growth through their community service and their platform, through learning how to interview well. They're taught other life skills like how to engage an audience or how to be in community because oftentimes at pageants, they're not one night deals. For example, the Miss Alabama pageant The contestants are there for a whole week and they're kind of living together for that week and learning how to get along with one another and work together. It's about goal setting and perseverance. They're going to say that the competition itself, whether you win or lose, has value. That's one of the things that they would claim about it. Also, as a piece of that, it's important to remember that there's more at stake than just that crown, just the top prize. So there are other values that they claim can come even if they don't win. There are prizes and scholarships, not just for the person who wins, but for the runners-up, for the talent winner. Some pageants even have separate panel of judges. They have the judges that are interviewing for the pageant, and they'll have a scholarship panel of judges that are awarding scholarships for various universities in that state. So you might get a scholarship to the school that you attend, even if you don't place in the pageant. So these are some of the things that they would say, like, sure, it can be really competitive and it can sometimes get ugly, but really it's about growing as a person and learning from what this competition can teach me. Now, feminists have been speaking out sort of against the Miss America pageant as the exploitation of women and so forth. I think most of us are pretty familiar with that narrative and you trace it a little bit in Mm -hmm. the book. How do the contestants get around the idea, ethically or morally? And I think you point out briefly in the book that you're competing for scholarships, but you're also having to put on a swimsuit and walk around in front of people in order to get that scholarship. Do you see tension between those two things? Or is it the women are just happy to do this in order to gain all of these benefits that you talk about? Absolutely. There's tension that exists. It is recognized by some contestants and not by others. It's like anything else. To a certain extent, we're all walking contradictions. Yeah. But I think for the young women who participate, some are very 
up front and saying, yeah, I don't really like the swimsuit competition, but it's 30 seconds of the competition. It's weighted less than any of the other portions. It's just something I have to suck it up and do so that I can reap the benefits that come from participating in the rest. So there's some that will talk about it that way. There are others who will say, that's my favorite part. It's about improving my body and showing off physical fitness. And it's important that we take care of ourselves. Some even quoting from scripture saying that the body is a temple and we're supposed to take Mm -hmm. care of it. And this is evidence that they're taking care of the temple of God. Then there's some that I don't see an issue at all. They don't see any tension. There's really a great diversity of responses to this. Some who live into it and say, yeah, sure, it's oppressive, but I do it anyway. Some who say, this is my choice. I want to do it and I have reasons for it. And then others who just don't see attention at all. You mentioned Bible verses and quoting scripture and things. Let's get into some of the heart of the book here, the faith questions, the religion questions. You write that there is a point in the history of the Miss America pageant when the pageant, unquote, got religion or it gets religion. So in the early 20s, there was actually a lot of negative reaction by certain women's groups and religious groups to the pageant that they saw it as bad for women and bad for the nation. I'm going to use just one of my go-to examples that the Southern Baptists passed a resolution on beauty contests in 1926. The resolution reads, whereas the purity and sanctity of the home depends upon a proper respect for and safeguarding of our girls, and whereas beauty contests and so-called bathing reviews are evil and evil only and tend to lower true and genuine respect for womanhood, Emphasizing and displaying only purely physical charm above spiritual and intellectual attainment. Therefore, we, the Southern Baptist Convention, do deplore and condemn all such contests and reviews. Pretty strong language, being out against pageants. And yet, by the 2000s, the Southern Baptists have put Deidre Downs on the cover of their WMU's magazine, who is Miss America, in 2005. What happened? How do we get from this place where they say we condemn all of these things to promoting them? The moment I kind of highlight as the moment that Miss America gets religion is in 1964. In the Miss America pageant 1964, at that time, all contestants had to sign an agreement saying they wouldn't talk about faith or politics because it was too divisive. So they all signed saying, yes, we won't do that. And during the contest, Bert Park was asking questions of the contestants, and he asked Vonda K. Van Dyke about her Bible. And she answered honestly about how she appreciated her Bible and what it meant to her. And then she ended up winning the pageant. And they tried to say, oh, well, you broke your contract. You can't win. And she said, no, wait a minute. I was asked directly about my Bible. So I was just answering the question. So they said, fine, you can keep your title but don't talk about religion and politics unless you're asked about it. Well, there was such an overwhelming response from the American public that this became the thing she was asked about the most. So she was invited to speak to youth groups and she was invited to all kinds of church events. I think both the church and the pageant saw potential to work together. That is kind of the moment that I say, I think things changed because from that moment forward, many other Miss Americas have used the base that they gain from winning Miss America 
to promote their religion in some way and to, to use it as a platform for their faith. Why did Burt Parks ask her about her Bible? Was she holding it? Vonda K. Van Dyke, who is a Methodist from Arizona, spoke about this faith commitment publicly because Burt Parks wanted to know whether her Bible served as a good luck charm. So I think she had indicated in her information sheet that she always carried her Bible with her. This is her quote. I do not consider my Bible a good luck charm. It is the most important book I own. And so that's how she answered the question. Now, you also talk about getting religion in terms of the Miss America pageant as an example of civil religion. What do you mean by that? So the pageant itself, as I mentioned earlier, is about crowning this ideal. Who is America's ideal? Who is embracing all that America values? Trying to understand Miss America kind of in the context of college football and country music and NASCAR. There are all these kind of super tankers that are carrying the sacred oil of civil religion. It's not Miss America itself that's changing over time, but that America Mm -hmm. is changing. And they bring Miss America along with it because it was a central part of American identity. The civil religion functions as a way of saying, this is what we value. And we value a woman who is going to embrace and hold on to the things that America holds dear. Like in the 40s, this looks like, oh, backing up even more. So in the 20s and 30s, this looks like women want to promote the home and make sure that they are the moral guardians of society. In the 40s, this looks like women who are going to promote the war efforts and make sure that they are showing the soldiers what they're fighting for. This continues in the 1960s with the Miss America USO troops that travels around overseas in Vietnam to kind of sing and entertain the troops, kind of a symbol of these are the things we're fighting for. We're fighting to preserve American womanhood, and these are the things we value. So it becomes this symbol that is kind of held up as a religion in and of itself. And this shifts again as women themselves become active participants in the military. And then military women participate in the pageant. It's not just these are the people we're fighting for, but we are fighting to preserve our right to do these things, to crown someone who is going to hold within themselves all that America finds important and valuable. Yeah, you mentioned in the book that Bert Arks, he refers to the winner as our ideal. It's a lot of pressure to put on a 19-year-old, 20-year-old woman, right? It's almost like this picture of innocence, this pure, unadulterated thing that needs protection, but also they haven't had enough time to mess things up yet, right? So there's this sense in which we value youth so much because of the potential. Miss America represents not only an ideal, but potential of the individual, but also of the nation. You talk in the last chapter about pageant culture. Am I right to suggest that you talk about the pageant itself as a sort of form of religiosity? Yes. So that the pageant itself can function as religion for some contestants. I think that they would not describe it themselves in that way. I think it would be far more likely to see the pageant as something that comes alongside their faith and allows them to live out their faith in the world. I mean, I know that that's a small distinction, but I think it's an important one to make that, yes, there are ways in which the pageant functions as religion by providing community, by providing ritual, by providing shared experience. 
But I think for the participants themselves, they would not see it or describe it as religion, but as a means of living out their faith in the world. You talk about this idea of sort of pageant contestants, a vocation, right? Being called. Yes, I see within the way that they write their narratives and the way they talk about their participation in pageant, it mimics church testimony. So identify this pattern that as you're reading, and I read a lot of autobiographies, and as I'm reading their stories, they follow this very predictable pattern. So it starts with this kind of crisis and call. Some of them talk specifically about being called to pageants. So, you know, some people are called to be missionaries. Some people are called to pageants. And I'm one of those who is called to do pageants. So this calling that takes place. And then there's this moment of faith being committed to the process. Like, maybe I'll win. Maybe I won't. Or for some of them, I am definitely going to win. And look, I did. Or I'm definitely going to win, but oh, I didn't. So let me reinterpret that. There's this kind of middle part of faith and what it looks like, the process looks like. And then there's reward. Sometimes it's really easy for them to describe what those rewards are. I won. I got this money that paid for med school or vet school. I won. I got this platform to talk about diabetes research and to raise money. But sometimes it's more vague than that. Sometimes it's about spiritual capital or influence that they gained and not necessarily tangible rewards. And then for all of them, they also talk about tests and trials, things that happened to them along the way that were unexpected or things that tried to knock them off their away from their vocation or knock them off course and how they had to remain true even in the face of these tests and trials. And then finally, there's that kind of what happens for those who lose? How do they understand this process and how do they talk about their faith in their losses? And so oftentimes they'll reinterpret these tests and trials and see them as rewards, right? That they can see this as something that built their character or gave them a way of facing other challenges in their life. So it's very much this religious language. It's not that it just gets laid over the pageant, though I think sometimes that's the case, but it infuses the pageant. So everything that they're doing takes on a new and more significant meaning because of the faith language that they use. So the pageant is church, right? And then back to the civil religion, right? You also talk about how it's a fascinating sort of site where they also talk about kind of rags to riches stories or social mobility. It fuses this kind of Christianity, God is leading me to do pageants and so forth, with this American story of becoming Miss America, kind of American dream story. When you're thinking about Miss America's God or thinking about religion in the pageant, I had to separate out and say, like, there's a faith of the pageant. So there's the way that religion, like the pageant itself is about religion and about civil religion. There's faith and the pageant. So how does the church interact with the pageant? What's that story look like? And then there's faith in the pageant. So how do the contestants themselves bring their faith into the pageant and Mm -hmm. live it out? through the pageant. It's too diverse to kind of lump it all together. So I kind of separate it out in this faith of and and in the pageant. 
And those are the titles of your last two chapters, Faith in the Pageant, Faith of the Pageant. Really interesting. Well, Mandy, our time is just about up. But is there a way to kind of, if people want to learn more about you and your work, do you have a website? I am in the process of putting together a website, but it's not going yet. I do want to put on a plug that if you order the book before the end of December from Baylor Press's website and you use the code 17 Sand, you can get 30% off and free shipping. 17 S A N D. Well, you heard that. That's a great deal. And I learned in our kind of conversation before we started recording that the Miss America pageant this year is in Connecticut at Mandy E. McMichael. If you want to follow (laughs) Mandy along, now I'm putting the pressure on you. You're going to have to do it. If you want to follow along with one of our foremost scholars of religion and beauty pageants on the night of the beauty pageant, follow her on Twitter. Again, the name of the book, Miss America's God, Faith and Identity in America's Oldest Pageant. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today, Mandy. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Mandy McMichael. Her work on the Miss America pageant is just so interesting, and it connects a lot with my kind of history, as I talked a little bit about at the beginning of the program. But some of the insights that she brings to this kind of iconic American event is really fascinating, especially the way she ties this into religion. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. And until next time, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. The Wave Improvement Leads Home is a member of the Recorded History Podcast Network. Check out the other podcasts on the network by heading over to recordedhistory.net. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, your podcatcher of choice, so others may more easily find this podcast. And let's continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter. Follow us at TWOILH Podcast. The podcast is brought to you through the generous support of Gretchen Adams, Richard Green, Margaret Graves, Kate Logan, Lisa DeGuardi, and Ron Schooler. Also, many thanks to our sponsor, Jennings College Consulting, discovering the right college fit for your future. The podcast was recorded at the studios of the High Center of Messiah College. Thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guest, Mandy McMichael. Our studio producer is Casey Lehman. I've been your producer, Drew Durley-Hermeling, and your host is John Fia.